1: Morning, glory to me, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, and I do mean special. You know, if you've listened to this program for any period of time, I love to talk to the people that move the culture, and uh, especially when they're writers. So you've heard me do extended conversations with Stephen Pressfield, who wrote Gates of Fire, Tides of War, and most recently Killing Rommel. You heard an extended conversation with novelist Daniel Silva about the Gabriel Alon books, and many of you ever, after those conversations, have said, can you find Vince Flynn? And the answer is yes. And today we are going to spend the program talking with perhaps America's best selling author over the last four years about what he does and why he does it about Mitch Rapp and about terrorism. Vince Flynn, welcome to the Hugh Hewitt show. Great to be, have you with us. Hugh,
2: great to be on the show. I'm a big fan of yours as well. Um, I got to tell you, my only gripe is that you're, uh, you come on in Minnesota as dusk is falling on the Twin Cities and the signal usually depending on what time of the year it is goes from great to really bad.
1: Yep, we that's that, that's that Patriot signal up in Minnesota. So we make you you have to move closer to the station, I guess. Man. Well, I'm glad to know you're a listener then you'll you'll know a lot of the shorthand I'm going to use in the course of today's conversation, but, yep. but let me begin by saying uh, it's extraordinary your background and I let me give the audience a little bit about this. Uh, you're a big family guy, uh, born in St. Paul, 1966, so that makes you 42, went uh-huh. to St. Thomas Academy, then the University of St. Thomas, an extraordinarily good college up in the Twin City area. You tried to get in the Marine Corps as an aviator. You had a medical disqualification, and then you decided you were going to throw everything despite dyslexia at being a writer. It, that's a pretty good summary, right? <laughs> it, is, it is very good. Now, well, but most people with dyslexia don't end up being... The best-selling novelist in America. How how daunting a challenge was that at the beginning of your writing career? You know, it was
2: a, it was a huge challenge at the beginning. But I I also think that dyslexic kids, uh, uh, because you're wired a little differently, I think your your brain is naturally a little more creative. And uh, throw on top of that that I come from a big family. I'm the fifth of seven children. You know, and I I grew up. Uh, I like to say, you know, that the tail end of the of that uh, of the parents of the baby boom generation. My mom and dad are both seventy one, where my grandparents were still around, and and you know, we only had three TV channels. Yep. Remember that growing up, you know, yep. maybe you got four, but it was prior to cable. Cable came when I was in high school, and so people still sat around and told stories. And, and, and go ahead. My editor has told me from time, you know, time and time again, because I, early in my career, I used to get a little worked up that the critics would shred me, you know, not enough character development, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And she'd always say, you know, listen, you've got a real talent here and, and it's, it's, it's the best talent that any, any writer could hope for. You tell a great story. Ignore them.
1: Oh, please do. And keep ignoring them because yeah. uh, people want to read books that take them in and captivate them. And if, if you, how many books have you sold, by the way?
2: Uh, you, last count I heard was we were over 10
1: million. Yeah. And, and, and the current one, Extreme Measures, that's the most recent one, uh, is a bestseller on the New York Times as we tape this. But I, I must tell people who are hearing about you for the first time, I can't imagine that because that means they haven't been in an airport or a bookstore in the last uh, seven years, that they ought to, they ought to start at the beginning. I know publishers hate when I say that, uh, <laughs> uh because then they don't go and they, they wait to get transfer of power and then they go to the third option. But don't you, wouldn't you rather have a reader discover you from the beginning of of the raptures and move on through? It it really,
2: I I have no preference either way. What cracks me up about it here is I've done this test before. I've had people get in arguments at my book signings over this. (laughs) People say you have to start at the beginning. Other people say you have to do this. And I'll tell them, pull out your wallet. Yep. Yep. And and the one person will pull out their wallet. And the, the one who says you have to start from the beginning and read it all the way through, their wallet is in perfect shape. The bills are organized perfectly. And the person who, who says, you can start anywhere. It doesn't matter
0: what
2: <laughs> – wallet is in shambles. They got a business card in there from 10 years ago. It's as fat as a brick. Uh, it, it really depends on the person.
1: That's very interesting because I have a wallet like the latter, but I had to start at the former. Dwayne is laughing in there because I'm exactly I'm – the, I'm the exception that proves the rule because I can't stand going backwards after I know what's happened in, in a character's life. But we'll come back to that in a moment. I, I still want to stay on bio a little bit because yep. – when I bring people in on, the, on the air who have you know, taken up hundreds of hours in some instances of someone's life, they never know enough about you. They, know, they can learn everything about their character, but they don't know much about you. And I, I always love the high school summary because that will put you on the map for a lot of people. What was Vince Flynn doing at St. Thomas Academy in 1980 through '84?
2: You know, I was a, I was a very good athlete, which uh, helped me get through school. And um, because I was a bad student and and St. Thomas Academy is a all male Catholic military uh, college preparatory school. And so they're not screwing around and um, there's no easy classes. And so I was lucky to get by, you know, this, you know, C plus B minus average. But, um, you know, the truth was my dad had taught there and I had older brothers who'd gone there and my dad had gone there as well. So I, I had a little more to live up to than probably most people, but I, what this, this is the other thing that happens with dyslexic people and, and there's a, one of the big newspapers or universities did a study a couple of years ago that came out about this is dyslexic kids, uh, grow up and they represent a disproportionate number of entrepreneurs. Like you can look at lawyers, accountants, all these various fields and the number of people who are dyslexic in those fields are very, very small. Now you look at entrepreneurs, you look at CEOs and the number jumps. It, it gets really big because they become problem solvers at an early age. Huh. They can't do things the way everybody else does. So you have to, because you can't actually write well um, and you don't do well on tests, the way you make up for things and the way you get by and don't get failed is you learn people skills. You learn how to suck up to your teacher. You learn how to verbalize in class because you can't write or read. And you learn ways around all the obstacles, why the other kids just tend to go along with you know, the conveyor belt. And the conveyor belt doesn't work for us, so you got to find different ways to do things. And um, you know, I I had a summer, I had a job year-round. I always tell my kids, because of course now because of my success, they're they're probably never going to have to do this. But but you, I had a job. If you can believe (laughs) it, in high school, my junior and senior year, I worked every Sunday at an Amoco gas station from nine in the morning to nine at night. With a 30-minute lunch break, and that was it. And Mr. Peterson, who owned the gas station, was a great guy. But we weren't allowed to sit down.
0: What?
2: We were not allowed to sit down because he didn't want anybody to come in and think that his employees were lazy. So there wasn't a chair or a a stool in the place. And we would (laughs) stand. We would. And this is, you know, people were still doing full service back then. Oh yeah. Coming in and he'd run out. You know, it'd be minus 20, and you're pumping their gas and changing oil and fixing tires. It was. I loved the job. It was a great job, but. You know, it, it put a lot of things into focus for me. Yeah, you know, Vince, I, Flynn, know I, I bet you for the rest of my life on Sundays.
1: So I'll bet you you're the only internationally known, celebrated author with 10 million book sales who's changed tires and pumped gas that way. There might be someone else. I have to ask Pressfield. He was kind of a screw off when he was a kid too, but I, I don't think anyone else. No wonder you know so much about cars. That comes through. Actually, <laughs>
2: well, you know. And by the way, Stephen Pressfield is uh one of my favorite authors, great guy, and if you, when I do a lot of research with the SEAL teams, in its base his book Gates of Fire, is basically required required reading for every SEAL. Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. They yeah. live by the ethos that he you know he puts forth in that book. And uh Stevens a I think the guy's a national treasure.
1: He is. I, I think you and Silva and Pressfield are the big three for me. And that's why I'm curious about what do you read when you read to relax?
2: Um, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it took me this long to read this book, but my wife <laughs> and I just got back from our annual trip to Mexico. We always, every year we go without the kids, and I finally sat down and read Lone Survivor. And I had had, I had President Bush tell me to read it. I'd had friends at the CIA, friends, special forces. Everybody was telling me you got to read this book. What, what, I, what, the problem I ran into, Hugh, was. When that book came out, I was under deadline for Extreme Measures, and I can't read anything sure. that is either in my genre uh, 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 fiction-wise or uh, nonfiction-wise while I'm writing.
1: I understand that. Explain I'm, that to people why.
2: Well, I'm i am I'm paranoid that, um, bec- and let's call it Catholic guilt or whatever, but I don't want to be accused of ever borrowing somebody else's ideas. I thought so. And so I just I don't even entertain the idea. In fact, there's some authors out there that I've heard about and people say you should read this. And I won't go there because I I just I don't ever want to be accused of taking one of their ideas. So I don't even pick up their book. Now, I'll give you the uh, the exception to that rule, because I think our styles are so different is Daniel Silva. Uh,
1: I'm not surprised.
2: Daniel is such. First of all, he's. I I meet a lot of authors, and I don't want to take away from the other ones I've met, but Daniel's one of my favorite. He's he's a great husband, a great father, uh, really actually a darn good sense of humor (laughs) that doesn't really come out in his books because they're so serious. But uh, he's just an all-around really good guy. And our styles are so different that I he's my he and kind of Lee Child, especially Lee's earlier stuff. It's my opportunity every year to kind of read. Uh, stuff that I kind of I mean, I'm mean, i in the same genre obviously you know the thriller but uh, I get to read their stuff and enjoy it and not really worry because our characters are they're tough strong guys but they're
1: very very different, different. well are going to come back and talk about that throughout the course of this interview you tuned in America you're lucky Vince Flynn is my guest for the entire program all of his books are listed at HughHewitt.com stay there 21 minutes after the hour America it's Hugh Hewitt my guest is novelist Vince Flynn Hyper best-selling author, uh, sold millions of books. His current bestseller is Extreme Measures. you got 10 previous books or 10 total books on the Mitch Rapp series. You can go to Wikipedia or my website anytime to figure out what they are. Uh, Vince Flynn, I'm still going to do a little more bio with you because, obviously, I looked at your bio and read it a little bit around. You're Catholic to the core. Are you yep. still practicing? Yeah. Okay. And, and, and what, tell me about your mom and dad because this looks like it could have been one of these classic big – catholic families around around who i grew up and was part of it it, tell me about it
2: well it's uh it's a pretty great story because you know my father went to st thomas academy as well and then uh, went to the university of st thomas graduated and started teaching back at st thomas academy right after he graduated and uh he coached basketball football and baseball there for 13 years and then um as he puts it, you know, one day he woke up and realized that, you know, a, a teacher's salary at a, at a private high school wasn't going to raise seven kids. So he left and went to work in corporate America, went to Borg Warner and then controlled data and, uh, and then, uh, did some other things. And now they're, they're retired and they spend their time, split their time between Mississippi and Minnesota. But he was a real stern taskmaster. I mean, we're talking about a guy who was more of the uh, Vince Lombardi coaching style, very successful coach, won two Catholic state uh baseball championships another basketball championship uh and was quite a player himself but um there was no screwing around Hugh. I mean it was it was there was no gray with him which I found to be a, uh, I didn't like gray I didn't want gray I wanted to be I wanted to know you know what what I could get what what was right or what was wrong and he, his whole deal was you want to step over that line you go right ahead and do it but don't you don't mope if you get caught, and you got to pay the price. Right, right. And so he was there to really, you know, I used to joke, because <laughs> we have a 13-year-old, and my wife is, she likes to go in and wake him up in the morning and rub his back, you, <laughs> know, you know, kind of, come on, let's get out of bed. And uh, when he started at St. Thomas Academy this year in seventh grade, he was having a hard time getting out of bed and getting ready for school. And I and I had been on tour and I came home. I said, No, this no, no this isn't gonna work. This is how you do it. <laughs> Just like my dad used to do. Uh two feet on the floor right now. That was what he'd say to wake you up. Get your butt out of bed. you know there's stuff, you got there's you know, there's the time's ticking, there's stuff to get done. So that was my dad. but he was very fair. Uh and then my mother was this uh a very successful wildlife artist in, in Minnesota in the Midwest, did a lot of stuff with Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever. Oh wow. So there was this creative side of the household as well. You know, she was the old Catholic mom you every kid in the neighborhood was welcome to come over and we weren't allowed to leave the house or or enter the house without giving her a kiss. Uh you couldn't go to bed without saying I love you. Now of course I didn't tell my father I loved him until his mother died, you know, and and right. I, was in, I was in college because yep. you, you just you never did that growing up. Now we say it all the time, and, and the world has changed. But I always say they gave they really showed me a unique roadmap of his discipline. He was one of those guys that, that was a list every day. He had a list it, it was, with boxes that he would check off of things he had to get done. Yep. And my mom was more of you know. You know, she'd walk around the house, you know, saying, happy, 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 yeah. you know, whatever makes you kids happy, you know, short of, you know, doing anything illegal. She yeah. <laughs> was all for us, you know, trying to fulfill our own hearts. Uh, and she was always there to pick us up and he was there to, to give us the swift kick in the butt when we needed it. And it, it worked out. I, I think, you know, I was, I'm very blessed to have been, uh, raised in a household like that. You know, what, here's the other thing I, I, <laughs> I I never went to bed worried that, that they were going to not be together in the morning.
1: Right. And that was strange. It's profoundly important, and it affects people. But, yeah, now yeah, you can I mean, tell they, how important it is.
2: They fought. I mean, they, they, had, they fought, and they argued, and, and we were one of those a classic Irish family where the, the dinner table was a time to discuss everything. And you I, – I took my lumps early, and you had – my dad was all for it. You had to learn – if you could not verbalize your opinions in a, in a logical manner, you were going to get your clock cleaned at the dinner table. Right, right. And your brothers and sisters were more than happy to do it to you, and it prepared me for life. But, you know, they would fight, but they would never go to bed upset with each other. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was nice. I, I, always, I look back on it now how nice that was to never worry that I was going to wake up and Dad was going to be gone with all of this crap on the front lawn.
1: Now tell me you're a Notre Dame fan.
2: You know, I, I, it's funny that you say that because I am. I grew up a diehard Notre Dame fan, and then something happened here. What? <laughs> my, my best friend from high school, Thomas Patrick Tracy.
1: Oh, if he went to USC, we're we're done. But go ahead. Oh,
2: no, he went to Notre Dame. Oh, okay. And he became such an obnoxious Notre Dame fan <laughs> <laughs> that he turned me. I was already a Michigan fan from an earlier oh, back. No. You're going to love the Michigan oh, deal. No. I'm in seventh grade and a kid named Chris Berkeley from, uh, from Columbus, Ohio moves in across the street. And within about three months, he turned me into a Michigan fan because he was so obnoxious.
1: Oh, because he was a Buckeye. That <laughs>
2: <Yeah. laughs> was all he talked about. So, uh, and I'm still a Notre Dame fan. In fact, this, this Charlie Weiss deal, it, it kills me. I, it's college football is not as much fun when Notre Dame. They're stinking it up.
1: You bet. And they're going to get better, and they have to. Otherwise, I'm going to have to leave the California state because USC people. You want to talk obnoxious, Vince Flynn. You ought to come live out here for a couple of years. <laughs> well, i right. heard. Now, I've now, now I want there. to go I've back heard. even further in time. Before St. Thomas Academy, what's the name of your elementary school?
2: Westview Elementary.
1: Oh, so you went public. You didn't have the well, nuns. My,
2: my parents made it when we were little. We were born in the Nativity Parish in St. Paul, and then they moved out to Apple Valley which is a suburb about the Valley, side of the Twin Cities. And uh, and they made a decision then that, you know, brand new public schools, good school system, and we're all going to church out there still. So they, they sent the little ones to uh, public grade school. And then we all went to uh, Catholic high schools. The girls went to Holy Angels. The we boys went to St. Thomas Academy. Got
1: it. A lot of people know how it did the reverse. Well, now tell me a little bit about um, uh, the craft. I always want to make sure when I talk to Pressfield and Silva, a lot of young authors, the first thing they always ask me when I'm doing one of these things is find out how you sold your first book. So let's start there. Then we'll go talk about the craft. How did you break in?
2: How did I break in? Um, this, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell this story in two parts. The first is... I am sitting in my cubicle at the age of 27 uh, working for an outfit called United Properties, which is a commercial real estate and property management firm in the Twin Cities. And once you turn 27, you can no longer serve in the United States Marine Corps as an officer. Now, they grant waivers now that we're at war, but back then they weren't granting any waivers. And Hewitt came crashing down on me like a ton of bricks. I had never gone for anything in my life uh, as hard as I'd gone for trying to be a marine aviator and failed at it. And you know, I was medically disqualified because of some concussions I'd had as, as a kid, and uh, it really stuck in my craw. I, I'm a I'm not a Buddhist, so I think we got one shot at this, and you can't turn back the clock. And so I, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna live my life and not uh, realize another dream because what what was eating at me here was I could have gone Marine Infantry as an officer. Right and i didn't for a variety of reasons some of which you know my father and, and some other people counseled me you know you really want to go in with a skill this is by the way the you know late 80s early 90s when people were still high on the airlines that that was a great job you know uh, it was a great way to to move forward in life and retire basically when you're 50 and uh
1: hold on that uh, we got to go to the break with Vince Flynn I'm coming right back i want to hear this story without interruption Vince Flynn is my guest meta big best selling author creator of Mitch Rapp And amazing conversationalist, I'm discovering. Don't go anywhere. Lots more ahead. The whole show, in fact, on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America's Hugh Hewitt with Vince Flynn on a special Hugh Hewitt Show. The entire program talking with America's best-selling author. Uh, Millions and millions of his books are all over the country, and they've given countless hours of enjoyment and education, as I'll be talking about today. To the public at large, but I'm so screwed here. I've messed up my outline already. I'm way behind, but I, I just we're going to go where it goes. When we went to break, Vince, you were telling us, I I had asked you, how did you you sell your first book? How did you break in? And you were talking to us about the fact that the Marine Corps would not let you be an aviator because of concussions when you were young, and you're sitting in your cubicle at 27 not wanting to regret something else.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't want to regret something else, so I said, I've got this idea for a book. Uh, I had a friend uh, out of college, a real sad story. He went to the University of St. John's about an hour north of the Twin Cities. He's the youngest of nine kids from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, His name is Dan Hudson. He moved out to Washington, D.C. after graduation and was there for five days and was shot and killed on Capitol Hill. was mugged right with his girlfriend. Uh, His older brother was out there fixing up uh, houses on Capitol Hill. And, I, you know, I know you spent a a lot of time in Washington. You, Most people... Uh, who did or weren't around it don't remember how horrible D.C. was in the late 80s. Right. And uh, it was a real cesspool. And, and I I just uh, at the time, about the same time, I'd read a book called uh, Washington Waste from A to Z by Martin Gross. And I just thought, what is what is wrong with this country that, you know, the youngest of nine kids from from Omaha, Nebraska, great kid can show up in our nation's capital and get killed literally two blocks from the capital at nine o'clock at night with his girlfriend. And, and, Mind boggling. And yep. It's really wrong with it. So that's what, that's what gave me the impetus to sit down and write term limits out of frustration. And I, I've been journaling that idea for a couple of years and I finally said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to quit my job. Uh, I don't believe you can anything that's really worth doing. Uh, and, is, and is competitive and, and fulfilling, you're not going to do it part-time unless you're incredibly gifted, and I wasn't incredibly gifted. I, I had to learn a lot. I mean, I, I took two English classes in college and got C-minuses in both of them. So I had an upward hill, but I thought the other thing he was, I, people always say, how do you think you could do it? I Every time I sat down and watched a movie or read a book, and that's another story, um, I always knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing, I, sh- I should back up and tell a real quick story. I, I'm taking a, a, college, a class pass-fail my junior year in college, and I'm not there to pick up the paper. Uh, a buddy in the class picks it up for me. I show up at lunch the next day, and there's the paper sitting in the middle of the lunch table with about ten of my buddies sitting around. And on the back of it is a big red F, and underneath it it says in red letters, A very, very politically non-correct, by the way. (laughs) It says, I don't know how you got into college. I don't know how you're going to graduate. This is the worst paper I have read in all my years of teaching. Now, it's a pass-fail class, okay? And I didn't give it my best effort, but still, I was still hiding my problem. I I wasn't confronting the fact that I was dyslexic. Uh and I'd taken special classes when I was a kid, but I, I I was really out of sorts with it. And my parents had been trying to get me to read for years. And so I finally sat down and I said, you know what, Th- this screw this. This is too embarrassing. I- I've gotta I've gotta confront this. And I'd been told by my counselors when I was little, you know, the only way to really fix this is you gotta read. And um, so I picked up Trinity by Leon because my mom and dad had been trying Amen. to read it. Amen. Great. Book. And it took me a hundred pages to get through it. It took me like a long time to get through the first 100 pages because it was so slow to start with. Then I was hooked. You know, The next thing I know, I'm crying. It's a very emotional novel. Yep. And all of a sudden, I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. Ludlam, Early, Clancy, the whole deal. And every time I picked one of these up, I knew what was going to happen. I, I, and it's so bad now, Hugh. I, 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 recite lines for movies and TV when I'm sitting on the couch next to my wife before the actor says it.
1: An intuitive and sense just, of story. Mind. You just have an intuitive sense of story where it has to Yeah, be. I, I think
2: so. And, and so I thought, you know, I, if, and I, and Hugh, maybe you're one of the only radio people I would, I could talk to who would fully understand this. Being raised, my father was a big, Irish Catholic. I mean, with a, a capital I C, yep. who really did not like the British. And I grew up hearing all about Oliver Cromwell and the Orangemen and you know the whole thing. You bet. And um, he was adamant to all of all seven of his kids, "You are no greater and you are no less than any person that you will ever meet in this country, and never forget that." And he would pound that into us over and over and over and over. So. I was given a talk a couple of years ago and somebody said, you know, what made you think you could write these books? And I said, well, I thought to myself, if Tom Clancy can do it, why can't I? And a, a, a large number of people in the audience began snickering. And I realized like an embarrassed child, oh my God, they think I'm conceited. And it, it took me a while to kind of get, get the idea back. And then I said, I got to back up and explain something to you people. I, I'm not being conceited. I just literally, I was naive enough and egalitarian enough to think that if Clancy could do it, why can't I?
1: More on that when we come back. Vince Flynn is my guest. This is amazing. Stay tuned. I'm sure you will. 44 minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt, fascinating special show. Talking with Vince Flynn, America's phenomenally successful thriller novelist. His new book, Extreme Measures, in bookstores everywhere right now. I am one of those people that they start with transfer of power even before that and go through them all. But whatever you do, you'll love them. Vince Flynn, we went to break. Uh, we were talking about you. You were naive and egalitarian enough to to take up the pen or the typewriter or the word processor. But after you started and you finish your first book or you at least get a draft of it, yep. how do you, in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota, 27 years old, with a crummy academic record and dyslexia, get to market?
2: <laughs> I started sending out the letters You know, to all the agents and the publishers and the editors And you're you're gonna, you'll relate to this. (laughs) I began to the rejection letter started to come back in. So what did I do? I used to pin them up on my bulletin board one after another, right where I write, where I would sit there and write. And I'd say to myself, I'm going to show you every day. I'd pin up a new one. I'd say, I'm going to show you. I'm not going to quit. And I didn't realize that he was a kid, how competitive my father had made us all. I just thought in the high school that I went to, I just thought that's the way everybody was. And I didn't realize until much, much later in life that that uh, that, that culture that my parents gave us uh, is very different than a lot of other how other people are raised. Yeah. And so uh, another quick story, senior year high school, we're playing Cretan, our, our tribal, and that's where a lot of great football players go to school. And we had a 18 uh, year streak on the line against beating Cretan. They were the other male Catholic uh, all, military high school in town. And uh, at halftime, we are winning 7-0. to And I play defense. I'm a, I'm a defensive end. And <laughs> we walk into the locker room. And by the way, uh, Chris Walsh is the starting quarterback for Creighton. Oh, okay. Who went on to win a national championship at Miami and playing the pros and everything. And <laughs> the coach comes, our coach, Jerry Brown, comes and he starts peeling off his jackets. And he's yelling and screaming. And he starts reaming me up and down. The, you know, Vinny Flynn, you little blankety blank, blank, blank. I'm so sick of watching you pee down on your plant, your pant leg, and i blah, blah, like get the hell out of this locker room. <laughs> and, you know, I get tossed out of the lock. And now keep in mind, I play defense. They haven't scored. We're <laughs> winning seven to zero. But again, this is old school, uh, you know, this, yeah. this is Herb Brooks. This is, you take the one guy on the team who you think can take it and he's your lightning rod and you use him to light everybody up. And I didn't, you know, you didn't think much about it at the time other than the fact that you're near being crushed. Well, you translate that later into life, and it, if you can survive that, who really cares if you get a rejection letter from some somebody in New York who you've never met? Right. That you're opening in the privacy of your own home. Right. Uh, so I, I didn't let this stuff get me down. I In fact, it, I kind of used it to fuel me. So I, after a year of all this, I end up and – you're actually going to love this story because I am – to make ends meet, I'm bartending at night. I've now finished the book. And I'm, I'm looking to make some extra money, so I'm painting for this guy named Daryl, who I knew from the bar, who, who had a good painting business in town. And I am standing in Vice President Mondale's kitchen in Minneapolis, <laughs> painting his kitchen. And I call my I call my agent that I have got down in Texas, and I fire her. And then I call up the three editors in New York who had had the manuscript for six months but couldn't make up their mind. And I said to them, I want you to I want you to reject my manuscript and send it back to me. And they were shocked because they'd never had anybody say this. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, I'm going to self-publish it. I had worked for Kraft General Foods out of college. And I had this idea, Hugh, that I was going to be like a minor league baseball team or like a, a, a local band. I'm going to publish locally. It's going to go well. And then I'll take it to the next level. Yep. And they thought I was nuts. So I, I sold 25% of term limits and raised a bunch of money. I put together a business plan and approached all these guys in town who had read the book uh, and, and thought it was good. And then I self-published it and went to number one in the Twin Cities. And then lo and behold, they all came running back. And I signed a two book deal with Simon and Schuster for, uh, at the time, it was a half a million dollars at the time. Wow. You know, I was going, this is, this is fantastic. And I have stayed with Simon and Schuster and my imprint is Atria Books and Pocket the entire time.
1: I I, mean, they do wonders by you, by the way. Just the look and feel of the books is, they're wonderful.
2: I have been so lucky. I always say, I would like to, I'd really like to get through this life with, uh, one publisher, one editor, one agent, and one wife. And so far, it, that's the case.
1: Are you also gonna go with one picture? Actually, the picture is different now on extreme measures, finally. I was gonna say, what, you're not aging over all these years and success? So. <laughs> It's every two years, they reshoot the photos. Say they do not. They do it. You want to
2: know something else? What? You know how painful those photo shoots are. Yes, and you've done
1: them. Yes, I have. Yep. They fly
2: me to New York, and I sit there surrounded by a bunch of people who are, are, let's just say, they're not like the guys I grew up with. And they are fussing with my hair and putting makeup on me, and you know, and putting paper clips on my uh, my suit coat and. You know, it's just, it's...
1: <laughs> tucking, tucking, uh, kerchiefs in your collar so they make up that. I know, I'm sure you're very comfortable with that. Before we run out of time on this segment, I gotta ask you though, where do you actually do your writing? This is another craft question. Do you go to the same place at the same hours and get, and, and discipline yourself that way?
2: I try. I got two things. They're both great setups. One is the cabin. We've got a cabin over in Wisconsin that's about an hour and a half from our house. And last year, the last two years I've been under such tight deadlines, I move up there for the summer. And Lisa comes up on Thursday night with the kids, and she'll drive back on Tuesday morning, and I write seven days a week. But it's 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 a it's a fun experience. You know, I'll get out of bed at 6 in the morning, dive in the lake. It's cold. I write pretty much all day long. And then my big treat, and this is where you come into play, is I, I open a bottle of wine, I grab a cigar, and I go out on the pontoon. And uh, I either listen to you or the twins. And I can listen, it depends if the Twins are, If I, have to, I hate to say this to you, but if the Minnesota Twins are playing, I don't listen to you.
1: Uh, that's okay, even though they're lousy and they've beaten the Indians a couple of times in the stretch here in the last 10 years.
2: But, but then, if not, I listen to you. But then as soon as the sun starts to go down, yep. I, I lose
1: you. Especially if you're in Wisconsin. We don't get so yeah, far so in so I, I, I sit
2: there with, uh, with a notepad, and I write down what's, what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, I already have cute index cards filled out. I, I, I love index cards. I write down all my ideas on index cards. I set up timelines, major scene summaries, you know, character summaries. But now we just, we built a new house and it's kind of been my dream. I've always wanted to walk across a motor court to a carriage house and, and work above the carriage house. And so we just moved in back in October, and that's where I'm sitting right now. And it's, you know, I got a fireplace up here, and it's, it's just fantastic.
1: Well, we're going to be right back in Vince Flynn's carriage house and his wheelhouse as we talk to him about how he grows Mitch Rapp. When we come back, don't go anywhere. It's Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt, concluding the first of three-hour conversation with Vince Flynn, America's superstar thriller author. His most recent book is Extreme Measures. You're going to love them all. I'm sure most of you who are listening have at least read one and probably all of the Vince Flynn novels. Now we're going behind the scene. We'll talk more about the issues raised by the novels in the next two hours after I get through talking a little bit about how they get made. Uh, Vince, this is a very short segment, but you just, you just mentioned something that I find a little bit interesting, how you do character summaries on note cards, and then you say you plan what's going to happen the next day. When you sit down to write Extreme Measures or Separation of Powers, or Memorial Day, one of I name it some of my favorite ones here. Do you know the whole arc of the story when you start?
2: I used to plot the whole book out, and then what would what I found out here was I'd sit down and I'd start writing it, and invariably a better idea always came along. So what I now do is the best way to describe it is I say, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave Minnesota. I know I'm going to California. I don't know exactly where I'm going in California because I know roughly how the books are gonna end. But I don't know exactly how I'm, where I'm going in California, but I better start heading west. And I better start working my way south. And so what I do is I outline the first third of the story. I see. And I, I, sometimes I barely get through that third. The, I, the, what happens with me is I sit down and I shut everything out. I can't have the internet. I can't have phones. I can't have anything. I listen to music when I write. And uh, you know, and the other thing that kills me is I, when I go into deadlines, I can't, I don't listen to talk radio and I'm a talk radio junkie yeah. and so I deny myself a lot of these things that I, you know, because I have to focus and I just write, write, write. And it occurred to me finally with writing the last couple of books, if I don't know exactly where the story is going to go every day when I sit down, I have a rough idea. Um, there's no way that the the reader can figure it out. Yeah, I mean, think about that for a minute. Sure, it makes
1: perfect sense. <laughs>
2: It'd be a little predictable. And I I don't know how you are. I assume you're the same way when you prepare for the show. You've got a, you know a bullet list of things that you want to talk about. But you can feel it when something good starts to happen on the show and you, you, you start to take off on a certain topic or you get a good caller. You're willing to throw that script out the window. Well,
1: that's why I'm my going. script is in ruins here. I've got, I've got three pages of notes and it's in total disarray. I got ten books. I haven't mentioned one of them yet. I've got questions on each book. I want to know, you know, why did you put Ruby Ridge and Waco into transfer? Of, you know, I got also, but, but, but the conversation's too good. So you go where the conversation goes. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you. And, that, yeah, and that's how you write. At least that's how I write.
1: Wow. Well, um, this is amazing. We're going to come right back. Vince Flynn is my guest, and this is gold. Uh, and I thought, I knew it would be gold, but I didn't know it would be this good of gold. Don't go anywhere, America. Go over to HughHewitt.com. Again, I think you should start with transfer of power. I think you ought to make sure you've got them lined up in the right direction. But if you can't help yourself and you're getting on an airplane tonight, I can assure you, you can read Extreme Measures and still enjoy them all. And in fact, Extreme Measures is going to rock your world a little bit. We'll be right back. Hour number two, straight ahead with Vince Flynn on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, Gordon, morning, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening. To a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, extended conversation with America's best-selling author, Vince Flynn. We got an enormous number of New York Times bestsellers, in including the current extreme measures out there. Phenomenally popular across the culture, uh, you, you heard Rush talking about them all the time, and uh, you'll get addicted and hooked if you pick up any of them. And uh, we get back to the chase here, Vince Flynn. Um, I, I want to touch about Hollywood in just a second, but in terms of the research, you know, in the in the current book. I knew about the triple triple frontier because it's part of the world of terrorism and people worry about that region. How did you find out about it? How did you figure out how it works and why Al Qaeda might want to go there? How did you research it?
2: You know, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg wrote a, great, wrote a great article. Oh, when was it? Two, three years ago, in uh, I think it was Atlantic Monthly, and we have the same agent, so that was the first time I was aware of it. The other reason why I know about that stuff is I I have been blessed with uh, some really good contacts uh, in the national security area. Um, I think chiefly because uh, people say, why why do you think these guys talk to you? And I say, well, because I am not a a partisan hack who wants to destroy the very institutions that I think are keeping us safe. So – these guys are great, you know, and I spend a lot of time going out to DC and, uh, and some other areas of the country where I sit down with these guys and we talk and, and I just, we press each other on these issues. Where is it headed? Uh, Daniel Silva, you'll love this. I'm sure you've had this conversation with Daniel, is I am always flabbergasted when somebody will say to me, um, how did you know, you know, how did you know that, that these terrorists were out there? And they wanted to kill us. <laughs> Why did you, and I, and I'm always, I always look at them like, you know, all right. Uh, uh, and Daniel and I laugh about this. Well, you know, we had this crazy idea that when they shot their AK-47 in the air and said death to America, that they actually meant it.
1: Well, well, you know, you bring up Silva, and and this brings up one of the interesting notes I have here. You, Your books, all of your books that feature Ben Friedman and Mossad, have a very... I don't want to say ambivalent, but a very nuanced view of Mossad. It's very different from Silva's, which is, of course, featuring Gabriel alone as an yep. Mossad agent. A- explain to people what you really think about Mossad and, and about Israel. And then we want to turn to the Saudis, another thing that moves through the books. I'm going out of order here, but you brought it up, yeah, so no, let's listen. go there.
2: I, I tell you what I, what I think about Israel is anytime you look at Israel, if you want to give it the nuanced effect, you have to remember that they are their own country. And at the end of the day, they will do what is best for themselves. There there is nothing either right or wrong about that. It simply is a fact, and it's the way it should be. Uh, Same with Saudi Arabia, same with us. People that actually think that Israel should just roll over and do whatever we want are, you know, I think being really foolish. One of the chief mistakes I think people in this country make is that they don't put themselves in the shoes of what the Israelis go through. They don't literally understand the psychological star, scar of what they've been through, the fact that they're, you know, they're the people that want to wipe them off the face of the planet are like, you know, you're, you're living in Westwood and they live in, they live in Pasadena, you know, and it, any day they could come over the mountain range and shove you into the ocean and you would cease to exist as a people. And, and they've got leaders who swear that that's exactly what they want to do. Yep. It's, it's, it shocks me at times. So I'm, you know, I'm, I have a deep, deep respect for Mossad. Uh, are they always perfect? Absolutely not. No,
1: you've created Ben Friedman so that you can hate Ben Friedman and still like Israel. I kind of like that. I think that's well, you actually. Know what's,
2: it's funny that you say that. I, I like Ben Friedman. I, you know, I, he's he's an interesting guy. He's he is what you would consider a classic spy. I get into this all the time. We're not, you know, in the real world. I I laugh when we start talking about how, you know, (laughs) all of these rules that the CIA has to follow. And we've moved so far away from what What they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to follow the rule. They're supposed to go abroad and do really nasty things to people and lie and cheat and bribe and steal to keep us safe. They're not supposed to go over there and act like they are you're working for the Justice Department.
1: Well, the reason I don't like Ben Friedman, I'll tell you very particularly, because he, okay. he went private in one of your novels. I don't want to give too much details of any of these away, but he went private contractor to make money. And and and, oh, and, and I thought yeah. to myself, ah, you know, it could happen, but it disturbs me. That's why I don't like Ben Friedman for that reason. Uh, what, not his national security.
2: What? That's a very valid point, and I, but I think, you know, I wanted to make him kind of this nuanced character. Oh, he is. You said, yeah. who, who you kind of begrudgingly respect. But at the same time, you know, he just, he really pisses you off.
0: And
1: he does, he does what he thinks is in the best interest of Israel as human. Now that brings me, I'm going to go out of order to Protect and Defend. It's your 2007 novel. It's about Iran. It's about Hezbollah. It's powerful. It's very important for people who cannot figure out the Iranians and they don't have the time or the effort they want to put into, to reading sort of the history of Iran. So go pick up Protect and Defend. You'll get a good idea why Obama's effort to reach out to the mullahs isn't going to work. But you got a character in there. You've got the Ahmadinejad character, but you got a guy named Ashani. He's yep. mildly sympathetic. Not much, but more than the Hezbollah nutter running around and more than Ahmadinejad and more than the theocrat at the top of the system. Do you believe such people exist inside of Iran, Vince Flynn? I
2: do. I do. And, and I'll, let me, let me, you know, I'll say this by saying I haven't been there. I'm not welcome. You know, the state news, news agencies condemn me, um, you know, and all that fun stuff. So I'm not about to run over there, but I, I believe in the. Um, I believe that, basically, on this planet this, that God created, you've got a certain number of people. And I've heard the, you know, the range being um, uh, one out of every twenty-five is a sociopath. I think in Iran, you you've, you see what happens when you get a bunch of sociopaths at the top who control the press, and they run the country. I, I just I find it Im- almost impossible to believe that there are that many people all the way through the government that are absolutely crazy. And the one the one area where I I, I think I could glean some proof of that is the fact that even the Supreme Council slaps down Wak from time to time.
1: Yeah, they do. They do. Uh,
2: because this guy is so far out on a limb. Yeah, you know, he, he is just uh, he is one of the more unnerving historical figures. And Hugh, I know you talk about this all the time. It, one of the, if I could, the one thing today, one of the things today that incenses me more than anything else, is that a guy like that can go and say what he says about America and Israel, in, in the well of the United States, of the United Nations, and nobody bats an eye.
1: That's even worse. He gets invited to Columbia to do it. That's mind boggling.
2: Could you imagine? And this would have been really interesting. And I know you've you've met President Bush on many occasions. He, could you imagine if he? had gone to the UN and said, I am calling for the complete destruction of the country of Iran. Right. Paused. Watched them all freak out and then say, I'm just kidding here. I'm trying to make a point that when he comes here and says that about Israel, none of you bat an eye. Yep. But when I say it, you know, you're all freaking out. What uh, do
1: you what do you think is going to, you know, you study this, obviously you had to for that novel and for the other novels. What do you think Israel's going to do about this nuclear program? Because we're not going to do it with anything now.
2: No, we're not going to do anything and, and we were kind of really painted into a, a, a tough corner the, the last, uh, the last couple of years because of the economy and in, in Iraq and some other things that were going on. Um, I, I don't know you. I, I, I don't see what they can do. The problem now is a lot of the program is so far underground. They've got it spread around that the analysts I've talked to say that short of dropping some tactical nukes, you're going to have a hard time completely taking out the facility. I, the only crazy kind of game-breaking scenario that I came up with, and I thought it would have been uh, really gutsy, but of course people would have flipped, is if, um, if President Bush, as a parting gift, had gone to the UN and said, um, listen, uh, we've tried to stop Iran from getting a nuke, uh, none of you have taken us seriously, and since you're not going to honor that, what we're going to do to guarantee Israel's uh, security is that uh, we at one point had 16 nuclear miss- missile ballistic submarines that carried 28 warheads apiece. And uh, um, we are, I think eight of them have now been mothballed. We're going to lease them free of charge two of these submarines for the next 50 years. And at any, one of them will always be at sea, and one of them will always have 28 nuclear warheads on that capable of wiping out the entire country of Iran should it be stupid enough to try to attack Israel. Good luck. Yeah. Then that- walk away and watch the international community try to come to grips with that whole thing.
1: I'm kind of hoping they've already got one, may not have 28 warheads on it, but they do have Israeli subs. And well, and
2: what they do have, what I have been told uh, is is they actually uh, have, uh, some of them hooked up to cruise missiles, and they are, all, one of them is always kept at sea aboard a destroyer. Should should they, you know, in case there really is a sneak attack, they also, of course, have the... Uh, uh, some missile-launched ones they can use as well as uh, yeah. ones they can drop
1: from airplanes. they got the temple weapons, as Golda Meir used to call them. I'm going to yeah. go to a break. I'll be right back. My guess is Vince Flynn. If you just walked in, yep. It's your lucky day, America's best-selling author. His current bestseller, Extreme Measures, out in bookstores everywhere. We're gonna continue the conversation. We're gonna to get to Mitch Rapp. We've been jumping around a little bit, but we're gonna talk a while about uh, what Hollywood is gonna to do to this and how they're gonna cope with it because it's a fascinating issue. What happens when Mitch Rapp goes Tinseltown on us, and whether or not Vince Flynn is gonna be able to keep the hippies from playing Mitch Rapp and making him into a kinder, gentler Mitch Rapp. I'll be right back, America. Five minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, talking with Vince Flynn, America's best- selling author the thriller after thriller that reached the new york times listening into your homes and in every airport in america you see him on every plane i've ever been on someone's reading your books vince uh, by the way how often are you recognized i mean you've got this picture out there all the time but nevertheless how often do people say vince flynn and bend your ear you know it happens
2: more and more <laughs> i was on a flight from uh, uh newark to orange county uh, that this past winter and uh it was going to be a long flight and i had been it had been a long week and i got on the plane and sure enough the woman sitting next to me was reading one of the books oh, no. and <laughs> She looked at the photo, she looked at me, she looked at the photo and she looked up at me and she pointed at the photo and I said, "No, that happens to me all the time." <laughs> <laughs> I just I guess I look a lot like him and but, then I just put on my Bose headphones and <laughs> and got some work done.
1: Cuz that would be a bad. you so say I was going to ask. I write a lot on on airplanes. Can you do it?
2: You know, I can. I, 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 used to not be able to, and now I can. And of course, it depends how far into the story I am, but, um, I, I, you know, when you've got kids and you're busy, it's, sometimes it's a great little respite to get on one of those planes, uh, if you've, I'm, I'm fairly tall, so it's gotta be up in first class or it's not a respite. And then, uh, you know, be able to kick back and just get some solitude, listen to
1: Amen. music and write. Now, do you, by the way, do you coach your kids' uh, sports teams?
2: Oh, geez, that's funny. <laughs> I coached, my, I have a 13-year-old stepson, um, and I coached his uh, his sixth-grade football team last year. And you're Mitch
1: rap it. on the sidelines.
2: Oh, and you know what I learned, Hugh? I learned that I am not emotionally equipped to coach my own children. And I have coached him, you know, in basketball and football for many years, but as, as it started to get more serious, I started to get more serious. and. We literally were in the playoffs and we were up by, uh, two touchdowns with two minutes to go and the boys imploded. And I won't get into the specifics, but they imploded and we lost the game. <laughs> so we, we go over to the, to the huddle and big coach Healy, who went to St. John's and, and tried out with the Saints. He's about six foot six. He's telling all the boys, well, you know, those are tough breaks and you know, it was a fun year. And I, I looked at him and I said, wait a minute. Oh no. I said, and, and, if I could take it back, what have I, I said, wait a minute, I said, guys, you know, uh, I'm not going to sit here and play this game of political correctness and everything's fine. It isn't fine. And I said, you know what, if you guys want to ever play football in high school or maybe college, you got to take that feeling, that pain in your stomach right now and you got to chew on it and you got to go out and you got to work.
0: <laughs> gosh. <this> sucks. <laughs> oh gosh. I
2: wish I had a I would he like a table. That. You know the parents are standing 20 feet away and they're looking at me like I'm
1: psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> keep the boys away from vinny. Right, now let's uh, let's get back to the other issue about Hollywood. I just don't see I, I know a lot of the guys in the business. You know, I I stay out of it. I'm on the news side. I'm not on the creative side, but I know and, and they're not your people, Vince. Nope. And so you've signed a deal. Are you going to write the screenplays and are you going to promise us that Matt Damon is not going to be Mitch Rapp?
2: Yeah, well, Matt Damon would never play Mitch Rapp no. uh for for starters, but um, you know, I, we, we, we got the deal last year and, um, I had this moment of great anxiety right before I signed it because I had a lot of friends saying to me, don't, don't let them ruin him. And, um, these contracts in Hollywood are very complicated and you really, you kind of cross that Rubicon and you're done. Your rights are, you, you give them away. And if you, if you try to be too, uh, stringent, they won't sign the deal because they want creative control. So we had a little 24 or 12-hour phone call with Lorenzo de Montaventura, who's the – he and Nick Wex are behind the idea. And I basically – all I wanted from Lorenzo was a promise that he wouldn't wussify Mitch Rapp. And Lorenzo promised it. And I, I think Lorenzo is one of the best producers out there. I think and Nick as well. They do a great job. They actually read the books that they buy, which is unusual for that town. They usually read – you know, one-page treatment that was written by some 21-year-old liberal New York, uh, you know, film school graduate. And uh, Lorenzo promised me, do you remember the scene in Consent to Kill where Mitch Rapp takes the, the son of the wealthy Saudi and he puts the suicide vest on him? Oh, you bet. Oh, and you drugs bet. He sends him out and he and the dad comes out of the mosque and he blows up. And then you, you flash to the to the guy who runs the, you know, Saudi security service and he's saying, how can this be? You know, we, we do suicide bombs. They, they don't do suicide bombs. Right. <laughs> and Lorenzo's promised me, cause that's the book they're trying to make into the movie right now, which actually I'm supposed to see the screenplay next week. Lorenzo said, I want to put that in the movie. That's how badly I, I want to keep Mitch Rapp the way he is.
1: Well, you know, I that's, wanna... vi- that, that's consent to kill they're going to make?
2: Consent to kill is where they decided to start. Wow. And I think the reason why is they want to, to add, they want a female side of the story to it to sure. bring that audience in. Okay, um, um, I know, but it, it's it's an interesting idea. Um, and now they they all read uh, Extreme Measures over the holiday break, and they um, and I only say holiday because I'm talking between Christmas and New Year's. I'm not afraid to say Christmas, Christmas. break. <laughs> um, they all read it, and they have now they want to put. Extreme measures into production.
1: Interesting. I would have guessed act of treason first because there's some easier characters. You know, Mm sigh is kind of easy. But if it's going to be consent to kill, uh, on my story notes here, page 450, you've got Saudi radicals funding conversions in American prisons. Now, this is a genuine, interesting news hook. It's a a very important story. You've got a harsh view of the Saudi radicals. I mean, you've got it throughout all your books. You're very eye-opened about this. How are they going to deal with stuff like that? Are they going to... Find a way to do it. Is it just going to be the the blow up and, and the sort of the central plot? Are they going to put your worldview in?
2: I, I think um, Lorenzo's plan is to have it in there. I, 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 you know, there's there, we, I ran into so much uh, so many obstacles every time we tried to sell this thing in Hollywood, the Mitraff franchise. I actually had uh, after Memorial Day, the head of Paramount had read it and uh, told my agent I hated it. It was more Bush than Bush. Now this was, this was back in 2003 or 2004. And I, I, to me that showed just how biased that town was. I said, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, the whole plot of the story is terrorists want to set off a nuke in Washington DC and New York. You know, not that complicated. And by the way, it's exactly what Al Qaeda said they'd like to do. Can we get on the same page and agree that that's a bad idea? Right. For all Americans? But no, they, and by the way, this is a little aside. I think that is why that town makes so many bad business decisions, and it's going to start to come back um, to the to the other to the middle, at least, I hope, is they let, unlike any other business I've been involved in, they let their own political beliefs really infuse their daily work culture. People say the craziest things about yeah. uh, about President Bush, the most offensive things they would say to them. and and now, you watch. You get anybody walk in the workforce and they make the kind of callous, uh, classless comments about President Obama. Those people, those same people that would say that stuff about President Bush, will freak.
1: And no, uh, you know I've talked to Andrew Breitbart about this. It is a remarkably closed town, but it, it, he's trying to bring some uh, some light to it. And again, I hope your your movies just sell, sell, sell because there's a point of view here. We're going to talk about uh, enhanced interrogation techniques and terror and the real world of fighting terrorism and torture in the next uh, hour and a half. But th- th- there's a point of view that is never represented ever in Hollywood filmmaking that I hope comes through in the Vince Flynn adaptations of his novel, I'll be right back with Vince Flynn, America's best-selling author. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, an entire show dedicated to a conversation with Vince Flynn because Vince has influenced so much of your lives. For those of you who've read any of his millions and millions of books that are out there, you know what I'm talking about, those who will be doing so prospectively. Vince Flynn, since we were just talking about Consent to Kill, one of my sidebar notes here, it's one of those odd things I notice, it was dedicated to brothers and sisters Daniel, Patrick, Sheila, Kelly, Kevin, and Timothy – and Lucy whose smile love and grace lives on in Lauren Connor and Jack now i know you've, you're you're one of seven so is is Lucy your sister i just
2: no Lucy was my uh my cousin Terry's wife who was uh she, her kids were roughly the same age as or their kids were roughly the same age as my kids and she uh she contracted leukemia oh you know a few years ago and uh it was very very heartbreaking she found out the week after New Year's and four weeks later she was gone oh my gosh uh, really kind of caught everybody off off guard you know 36 years old beautiful um, a real uh, a real tragedy but you know in the end a real blessing to, to I always say we, we've Lisa and I have have had a, we had another uh, couple that we knew were well um, lost their little 13 month old boy went to bed and didn't wake up and, you know, when stuff like that happens, you, you really realize you have no problems. You you don't have anything that you have no right to complain about anything. Um, you know, <laughs> if you can wake up in the morning and your kids are still breathing. Uh, you're a lucky person.
1: Yep, you are only sure. as happy as your least happy child. One parent told me. I think that's probably true. Let me ask you: in yeah. terms of Daniel, Patrick, Sheila, Kelly, Kevin, and Timothy, what <laughs> what do they think of this? I mean, you're their brother. I grew up in a Catholic family. You hit everyone. You knock each other over. You you, you wrestle around the house, all that sort of thing. And now you're this international figure. I, I'm sure they cut you no slack, but no slack. Not. <laughs> but but what do they think about this?
2: I don't know, Hugh. I don't put any thought into it. (laughs) This is where you get me uncomfortable. I I you know, I once I read not too long ago, people tend to get stuck at a certain age and they always think of themselves at that age. Yeah. And that's that's what I do. You know, I still live in the same town I grew up in. I still uh you know, my best friend from high school is the you know, is the godfather to my one of my daughters and I'm the godfather to one of his, you know, kids and I hang out with the same people, and I just try to keep, uh, you know, I just I don't let it get to me. I, I try as I try, and I, you know, the one it's starting to, it's the one the one play way it's starting to get to me a little bit is the kids have come home and they're they're starting to hear stuff here and there at school and stuff, and and I say there's the, the two words that I will not allow in the house, which is the F word and the C word, which is celebrity and famous. And they're starting to buy into that, and and kind of get this idea that their dad does something. You know, uh, I don't know what it is. I, I hate to even think about it, but it, it bugs me because I don't want my. I, I got to grow up in such a great household. I don't want my kids to grow up somehow tainted by this.
1: Influenced by fam and celebrity culture.
2: Yeah. So we stay. I, I, you know, I if I'm uh, you know if I'm on public, uh, you know, I, I'm. will tell you what. We Lisa and I were just down in Mexico, and Billy Williams the, you know, the lead actor in CSI was at the resort where we were staying. And, and I mean, we're, I'm talking about a, it's a four bedroom house, ultra, you know, really secluded deal. We didn't bother him once all other than saying hello. You know, there were, at the time there were, there were three couples there the whole week we were down there and just let them go be, you know, I, they may part of that's Minnesota too, but I just don't, I would never walk up to a table while someone's eating and say, excuse me. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that some of that started to happen, and I just, I, it's one thing if Lisa and I are out, it, it drives her nuts. But I really hate it in front of the kids because yeah. I, I just would like to have them kind of not be affected by it.
1: But now, another real world question: You are working at a phenomenal pace. You have mm-hmm. turned. I mean, I write a lot of books, but they're nonfiction books, and you know they they sell eight copies. The question is, why are you rushing forward with? I mean, two a year sort of thing.
2: Well, it's one a year right now, and and uh, it's going to stay that way. I would like to branch out and write, you know, kind of a more of an FBI uh, private eye type thriller based in the United States, but I got to be careful when I do it. And um, you know, to be honest, uh, you, I enjoy writing, and if writing is a discipline, and if you put it off, it's easy to put it off. If they told me I only had to write two books, you know, a book every two years, I'd write, you know, a book
1: every, every two, two years. years. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and uh, the only the only thing that makes this hard is with the kids and school and everything, I don't get to travel to do the amount of research that I used to do, which makes it a little more difficult. But then again, I, I have this knowledge base now, and I have these con- this Rolodex of these people I can call, um, you know, to do my research. So it's, in many ways, at some point, it's like getting ready for a marathon. You just got to say, all right, you know what, on Monday morning, I'd better start running.
1: Yep, I've he got. 20, I got to
2: run that thing in four months. Yeah, I got
1: 20 weeks to. That's so funny you say four months. Yeah. I'll be right back. Vince Flynn is my guest, the best-selling author. We continue now. We're going to turn to the big questions of the politics of the novel. Stay where you are. 44 minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. To a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, spending the entire conversation with Vince Flynn, America's best-selling author, his brand new book, Extreme Measures, in bookstores across the United States. Of course, it's at Amazon.com. All of his other books are at Amazon.com. If you want the order in which they appeared, I recommend Wikipedia to you, or you can check it out today at HughHewitt.com. I read them that way, but there's no need to do it that way. Okay, Vince Flan there's a worldview in these books. How much of that is yours? How much of it simply developed around the character of Mitch Rapp?
2: You know, it's, uh, somebody finally buffed me with this question the other day, because people always say, are you, are you Mitch Rapp? And I'm like, no, I'm not Mitch Rapp. You know, of course I'm not Mitch Rapp. And somebody finally said to me, um, uh, what things do you and Mitch Rapp disagree on? <laughs> Good question. Great question. <laughs> I like, well, now you say it that way, I don't. We really don't disagree on a lot of things. Um, yeah, it's my worldview, and it's a fairly, uh, you know, it's a little all over the board. But I, I tend to believe that uh, the people who we should support are the men and women who make less than a uh, bus driver in Washington D.C who work seven days a week, who put their lives on the line. Um, these are the men and women, you know, at the clandestine service, at the CIA, uh, the, the overseas teams in the FBI, the Secret Service, and the special forces in the military. These are the people we should be giving our almost unflinching support to. Um, I have, in the last couple of years, taken, an if it's possible, an even more callous view of our political leaders in Washington.
1: Oh, that's clearly true in in the most recent book uh that and, and easily turned once the once the toll of terrorism comes home but it, it's hard to get more callous by the end of this except uh, I think we're entering an era where we will even fall off the floor here uh eventually yeah
2: and you know the, the thing that and I know you talk about this all the time but the thing that gets me just shaking my head is the the way the politicians get away with it that they can stand up uh, like they did in the 70s and 80s and neuter the CIA and uh, miss opportunity after opportunity in the 90s to deal with this issue of uh, international uh, Islamic radical fundamentalism. And then when 9-11 hits, act absolutely shocked that it went down. And and now pull it to the financial debacle and especially the mortgage crisis. These (laughs) – I've got to be careful that I don't let loose any profanity. No FCC
1: violations, please. These –
2: these individuals on Capitol Hill, why are they there? It is their entire job, one of their most important jobs, to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen, to regulate, to hold hearings, to legislate. And what do they do? This, this, they were all at the switch when this thing blew up, and now they act shocked. And they want to blame some CEO for flying in a G5, that that, that, that somehow is going to you know explain away the problem. Uh, and I know, you know, Barney Frank and the it's
1: it's it's well, let me so ask really, you about uh, I, I agree about the political types and we can come back to them. But what's much more interesting in the novels is that you have to carry forward and you do uh, a double breasted approach to the agencies, because like you, I've happened to know a lot of people who served as undercover operatives in the clandestine services and they mm-hmm. like any bell curve. There's going to be great, are going to be terrible yep. ones, and are going to be most of them in between. And you've got good ones and bad ones in the CIA, but you also have wonder workers. And I'm wondering, does a Marcus Drummond really exist? Do you think? Uh, the
2: types, yes, they do. That's amazing. Well, and, and, and maybe not as rolled into one person as he is. Uh, maybe not as uh, as uh, uh, as illegal as he is. But they do have their teams that are capable of doing some pretty amazing things. Uh, technology-wise
1: that's good to know now you've got some people like peter cameron again he appears in the third option he's a rogue former cia agent who's just gone out for the money and does very nasty things for the money you think such of those people exist
2: well (laughs) and again i always have to be careful i don't want to offend uh, uh any friends you know blackwater's in the news again today yep and blackwater i i like eric prince i know him personally and um I think Blackwater, uh, you know, unfortunately got caught in the middle of a big fight between the state department and the defense department. And, and the idea that, uh, a lot of people whose livelihood depends on it. The Pentagon didn't like an outfit like Blackwater running around doing what it was doing. Um, but having said that, you know, Blackwater, um, employed some cowboys that, uh, probably didn't practice some restraint, you know, that they should have practiced. And, uh, it's nothing to take lightly, um, and I think uh, there is uh, quite a few ex-guns-for-hire who have been uh, out working all over the place, and it, it didn't just start with the beginning of the Gulf War, or excuse me, the uh, the Iraqi freedom, but uh, it's been going on for quite some time. And uh, you've seen it over the years when you've got, you know, former, you know, SEALs and Green Berets and Delta guys going down and running the security operations for, you know, some drug dealers in South America. Right. And it's just like you said, you're going to have your bell curve. You're going to have some bad apples. But that, that doesn't mean you should paint, you know, the entire Special Forces community as a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, mercenaries.
1: Of course. Not. In fact, uh, uh, you mentioned Marcus Luttrell earlier. I had a chance to interview him down the deck of the Midway a, a while back. I, I think, if anything, they're getting squarer. I've gotten to know these guys because they have oh, supported, they're name. getting more and more square than they must have used to been. In fact, when you describe in Executive Power the training on pages 236 to 237 that goes down on the strand there, you know, they must wash out all of the sociopaths at this point.
2: I, I think they well, and then there was an argument that Right there, uh, back in uh, 02 through 05, uh, uh, quite a few of the folks down at Bragg and uh, out of Coronado were getting upset that they were being told, "You gotta not be so harsh on some of these people because we need some numbers." And uh, they didn't like that. You know, they said, "Go ahead and send more of them to jump school, do whatever you do, set up new units, but we don't want to lower our standards um, because you know if you, you, you read you read in uh, Lone survivor, and it's not uncommon. You know, basically, you're looking at 160 guys going to a class, and if you're lucky, 30 graduate.
1: Right. That's that's very amazing. And and and, and you,
2: none of them are wusses going in. Yeah. You know, it's not like you, you'd look at him and go, oh, he's going to drop for sure.
1: Well, you say, you have a line here. I, I, I scored it when I was reading through it. The men who ran the Naval Special Warfare Center in Coronado needed to find out who could take it because in the real world of special operations, quitting was not an option. I'd actually never thought about that as clearly as that until after, in the course of reading Executive Power. You don't get to say, I'm tired, do you? <laughs> you don't know, get to be a radio host. You know, I'm going to take tomorrow off, Dwayne, run the Vince Flynn special. I'll be right back, America. Vince Flynn is my guest, uh, extraordinary novelist, uh, great, great series of books. They're listed at HughHewitt.com. Don't go anywhere. Good back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, concluding hour number two with one more hour to go, talking with Vince Flynn, the author of so many extraordinary bestsellers, including the current one, Extreme Measures, in bookstores across the United States. Uh, Vince Flynn, uh, do you watch 24? I do. What do you think?
2: Uh, this year I have not, uh, well I actually was down at Russia's and got to see the first four, was it four? Yeah, first four hours, uh, uh, back in, uh, what was that, November? Yeah, November. But other than that, I haven't been able to watch it on TV this year because uh, of some traveling. But they're T-Boat right now. I I consulted on season five.
1: Oh, you did? Oh, I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. How was that?
2: It was, it was a lot of fun. You know, they're a real interesting group of guys, uh, you know, uh, Joel Cernow and Bob Cochran, the creators, are now off the show. But uh, real interesting birds. You know, Bob Cochran is just – you guys an absolute genius. Uh, Joel is this, you know, frenetic ball of energy who um, kind of pushes people to, to come up with uh, newer and better ideas. And, and Howard Gordon, who now is running the show, uh, is, is just – he's about one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet in Hollywood.
1: You know, it's very interesting – you're very, uh, eclectic in your, in your choices of friends. And in the books, you'll throw off stuff. I'm looking at my notes here. Separation of power, a little conversation between Mitch and another character. I won't give it away. Washington times versus Washington post and how you can, you know, <laughs> tweak people. So you're very knowing about your media inputs. How much are you out there when you're not writing an isolated, taken in media? Obviously you're talk radio junkie, but what about the, the other I stuff? I inhale
2: it.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: it sounds like it.
2: <laughs> I, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, I was one of these kids who, uh you know, on Sunday morning, I'd get up. And again, you know, we had three. There was nothing on TV back then. And I'd get up and I'd watch, you know, meet the press, meet the press. this week or whatever. And that's
1: because that's all that was on.
2: Yep. And I'd, you know, sit there and eat my cereal and get ready to go to mass.
1: Yeah. Now, by the way, are you an altar boy. Uh, of course. Just checking. <laughs> now, uh, now, you listen to Rush. You listen to me. I'm very flattered by that. What other talkers you listen to?
2: Uh, I listen to Glenn from time to time. Uh, there's a great guy here in town called, uh, Joe Oh,
1: Tritt, Joe's wonderful. Yeah.
2: Who's got, you know, the show Garage Logic, who is, uh, his, one of his producer, the rookie, Matt Makowski is one of my high school buddies. And so I just, I, it's, I love that show. You know, I, I listen to Laura in the morning. It kind of depends what I'm out and, and, and what I'm doing.
1: Okay. And, and I hope you're listening to Medved and Prager. I have to put that in. Well,
2: you know, I do, I do listen to both of them for some reason. Um, uh unfortunately for Michael, uh, Suchere and he are on at the same time. Right. Gregor's right. on at the same time as Rush, but I'll skip back and forth between. I, what I like, and I, I'm going to say this about you and Dennis, and I think Suchere is the same way. You guys have this great talent of not letting people get under your skin.
1: Well, that's, yeah. Amen. And keeping
2: things intellectual, entertaining, and humorous. Which is not an easy balance to strike.
1: Well, it, it, there, one guy has gotten under my skin. His name's Jay Larson. I'm wondering if you could have range to have him killed. He's the <laughs> he's the guy over at the Patriot. Can we can we have that done with your contest? Are you serious? No, okay, I'll let him live again. I'm coming right back. Hour number three with Fitz Flynn, the author of so many wonderful books. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is AndrewandTodd.com. There with Sierra Pacific, they lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no-money-down mortgages. They help you refinance. So, if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888 1172 Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and The Interview. Morning, glory to be Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, talking with Vince Flynn, America's best-selling author of books about the war. They're novels, but they are really about the war, the long war, the war that we are in. And this hour, we're going to focus in on that. Vince Flynn, I think of these, the one that that, uh, got to me the most is Memorial Day, because it's about the city which I love and the city in which I have lived and may live again, Washington, D.C., coming Mm -hmm. under nuclear threat. And it reminds me of Bill Keller's story when he wasn't the editor of the New York Times about, you know, can they get? a device here, and this is what happens when a device is coming, and it's the classic question of what do you do when it comes time to interrogate or even use extreme measures against terrorists who know about a massive impending attack, and you don't let people off the hook. You put it right there. You force that hypothetical. I don't think the left loves to talk, will will even ever confront this hypothetical. What's what's your thought about the Memorial Day and the reactions to it? Well, you
2: know, you get these people like Matt Damon, for instance, who who goes on national television and is is not challenged the way you get challenged. You you go on you go on these shows and you say something that's you know somewhat or you, anything you say is going to get challenged by you know Chris Matt, Chris Matthews or whoever. Uh, Matt Damon goes on a Today show and he says these crazy things like, oh you know torture never ever works. You know I could I could you know get somebody to say anything and uh, anything that I want him to say by torturing him. Well, he, he starts off with a faulty premise, which is that the, the the men and I have to be very careful when I discuss this because I'm always afraid that one of these days the Justice Department is going to knock on my door and subpoena me and ask me who do you talk to and what do you know at which point I'm going to end up in jail not.
1: Call me. To I'll represent but, you. I'll call you. But, me. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but um, let me say to you, you know, wink nudge fictitiously how this stuff goes down. You uh catch somebody like Sheikh Mohammed on the battlefield, and you bring them into a very dark place, and you disorient them over a three- to four-day period. You don't let them sleep. You play Barney uh, blaring, I love you, you love me. You do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And you may actually, you may actually slap them around a little bit. Um, and uh, you get them so disoriented that they don't know if they're coming or going. And if they won't begin to talk at that point, you you may waterboard them, which... Um, I always say, it's nothing that we should be proud of as a country, but um, there are many things that this country has done that you know I wouldn't be proud of. Uh, uh, President Lincoln and President Roosevelt are often, FDR that is, are often cited as two of our greatest presidents. By every, I mean, nobody disagrees with that. But the left conveniently leaves out the fact that both of them, at a time of war, basically threw out habeas corpus and just absolutely tossed people in jail opened up every letter of, FDR opened more mail than than any president right. has ever done. Anything that came over from Europe, they, they just opened it. They didn't care. Yep. Um, and so you, we are going to have to make some, you know, some arrangements here. Now, when they get these terrorists to start talking, what they do is you waterboard them, all right? They pop up, you ask them the question again. They never start out you asking a question that they don't already know the answer to. It's just like an attorney in a court of law and once they get them going down that track and by the way they're hooked up to you know biosensors you know to, to measure everything to know if they're lying to them or not they've got people sitting in another room that are connected to databases all over the world and they're checking everything these guys are saying and at any point they can say oh we'll take a 15 minute break go up in the other room they find out what's he lying what's he telling the truth about they go back in and they say listen you just lied to us about this you want to go back on the board?
1: Well, that's the brilliance of extreme measures. I mean, you really communicate in that, and in, in lesser or so in Memorial Day, but extreme measures, how this actually works.
2: And, and you know what? It's unfortunate that we even have to talk about it because the truth is, and in my opinion, this is why we have elected representatives. These 15 people that sit on the Senate Select Intelligence Committee are supposed to do this for us. They're supposed to make these tough decisions and keep their mouth shut and say, you know what? These guys never signed the Geneva Convention. They, they they intentionally attack civilians. You know what? So be it. Let the CIA go take them to some, you know, I'm sorry to say it, some hellhole of a prison in the middle of nowhere and, and make their life uncomfortable. As I once said to President Bush, and I actually got him to snicker about it, I, I said, Mr. President, the next time somebody says, starts complaining to you about the treatment of this, just stop and say, are you kidding me? You want me to lose a wink of sleep over the fact that we waterboarded, the guy who came up with the idea to to take these civilian airliners slit the throats of these flight attendants slip the throats of the pilots turn them around and fly them into the world trade center and you want me to you want you want some compassion from me what, what do you want from me yeah. boo hoo
1: i just uh, got a note from frank Dowes. he he runs the Agamas group in san diego 20 years in the marine corps uh, Aviator guy, you might even know him or come across him. He taught the survival and evasion course for a number of years in which some of the candidates are waterboarded. And he cannot believe we are abandoning this technique for circumstances such as those you describe in Memorial Day. Do you think we've hurt our national security, Vince Flynn, by doing so?
2: I do. And I'll tell you, uh, did you, you remember, I I know you watched the inaugural. Yep. Remember the moment where uh, President Obama said, you know, we will not, you know, uh, give up our ideals, you know, for security, and they flashed to President Bush, and he kind of gave it that little Texas, you know, smirk and nodded. And I, uh, you know, the man, and I know the man, and I know exactly what was going through his head, which was, we'll see.
1: Well, you know, he's also count. I'm sure he's told you this. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but my guess, he, he said to you that that the briefings change the candidate. Oh, absolutely. And I'm hoping that that is the case, that you you find out how many people want to kill us and how they want to kill us, and you've got to take this differently. There's a speech in Memorial Day. Uh, on page 365, Mitch Rapp is talking to the president. Mr. President, there are a lot of things that I don't tell you about, stuff you're better off knowing, but maybe now's a good time to give you a glimpse into what it takes to win this war. Do you have any idea how we found out the nuke material was on that ship headed for Charleston? Um, obviously, I don't know if those conversations have happened in the Oval Office. I'm not sure I want them to happen. That's what deniability is, has always been about. But, again, the rule of law matters. Do you think we have hit the right balance over the last seven years, Vince Flynn?
2: no (laughs) i don't i think that i think that president bush would have liked to to push that a little farther into the arena of back where it was back where it was with 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 kennedy and with eisenhower where people in the in the senate who got first of all you are not allowed to sit on one of these committees unless you know how to keep your mouth shut right and the problem is that's all gone now they they go on there they leak like sieves they give stuff away to the press there used to be an honor amongst the politicians that national security was sacrosanct. This is not a political football. If you want to play that game, go over to the judiciary, go to, you know, the armed, you know, uh, you know, the armed services committee, unfortunately, you know, could never be that because there's too much money at play. But intelligence, it was simply, you're going to come on this committee, you're going to keep your mouth shut, you're going to see things you can never talk about, and that was that. And they all said, you know what, we got, we have to do this because if we want to stay safe in this world, this is what we have to allow the CIA and these other agencies to do. That's all gone out the window now. And and I'll be honest, mostly from the Democrats, and I'm with this pork in the in the various budgets. I'll spread the blame all over the place. But when it comes to this intelligence issue, the Democrats have been abominable in keeping their mouths
1: shut. So I guess you're pretty happy. You're pretty happy that Al Franken's most likely going to be your new senator
2: me because uh, Senator Coleman, uh, you know, was a man from St. Paul, and he's a great guy, very effective, uh, and, and uh, I was a big supporter of his. But
1: you know, hey, let me let's turn to the uh, to some other stuff about the bad guys because part of the the wonder of this book is that you're trying to educate people about the bad guys. Now, I have always been a thriller fan. I read Len Dayton and Le Carre when I was growing up because I wanted to know what was going on, and I think it teach more about the Cold War. In novels and what it was really like in Berlin and what it was really like to be at the tip of the spear. And now you're doing the same thing. Did, did you intend to start out that or were you just telling stories and making money? And now have you adopted that mission of trying to get people to understand what it's like?
2: It's, it's really interesting you ask that because at the beginning, I think I was trying to tell a story and, and I believe the marketplace is, it's a big place. Okay. So John Grisham, who I have a ton of respect for. David Baldacci I have a ton of respect for I think they're both really talented writers uh, I, in fact I think Christian never gets enough credit um, but uh, they are they tell all their stories from the liberal side of the perspective okay oftentimes the FBI is a bunch of bumbling fools um, and and what have you um, I still respect those two as writers and and uh, I've heard nothing but great things about them as individuals I have a different opinion than they do though And so I got into it because I used to get a little bummed out when I'd read Grisham and every FBI agent was an idiot. I said, you know, I want to. I've met a lot of these guys, and I want to tell the the story from how I feel it is that these are a lot of, you know, good family men, and they're selfless, and they're not doing it to make a bunch of money or satisfy their egos. They really do believe in this country and what it stands for. And so I, and then it grew over time. Over the last 15 years. What has happened to you is I have grown so frustrated by uh, this blatant partisanship. And I'll tell you, on 9-11, I was sitting in my house, and I saw the hole in the first hour. And Brian Gumble was still on the Today Show, and he said, oh, you know, it looks like a small commuter plane is at the door. And I'm like, "And I, you know, I remember they'd try to take it down the one time, and I'm going, no. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> nah.
1: say, I was on the air that day. I'll talk about that. We come back, how it changes everything, if you're paying attention. Vince Flynn is my guest. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. The yeah, American Hugh Hewitt with best-selling novelist Vince Flynn and a special edition of the program. All of Vince's books are linked over at HughHewitt.com, but you don't have to go looking for them there. You can go to any bookstore in the world and find Vince Flynn novels, starting with... Uh, the very first one through number 11, you'll love them all. Uh, pick your order, although the most recent one, Extreme Measures," is very timely right now. Vince Flynn, before we went to break, we're talking about the fact we're both blessed because we get to combine, in what we do for a living, the the passion of educating people about the war. I get to do it by talking uh-huh. to anyone who writes books about the war that makes sense, whether it's John Burns, whether it's uh, uh, Lawrence Wright. I'll bring them on. If, if they know or have something to talk about the, the war, I want them to be. But you have to limit how much you do that. Otherwise, people are overwhelmed. Yep. Your books have to include a lot of other stuff besides who the bad guys are or you'll you'll lose your you have to tell a good a good tale. But I found as I read from 1 through 10 of the rat books, I didn't read the very first book, but 1 through 10 of the rat books that you were getting better and better at doing more and more uh, uh teaching. And I mean like Al-Yamini Uh, I think you you read through Memorial Day, and you're going to understand what makes these people tick a lot better. Or or you go through the, which one's what the Palestinian terrorist who who blows up the bad guys? And he's very interesting character. Executive power. Very interesting character. Very sympathetic to the Palestinians, by the way. Well, and you caught on to it.
2: He is, he, he, when I told that story. Uh, you, you have a really good instinct for this. <laughs> that was one of the books where I, before I sat down to write it, I said, you know what I want to do? I want to tell a parable of, of the Palestinian people. That in the end, they're always screwed. Yep. And they're all, and typically by their Arab neighbors. Yep. And that's, you know, I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but, no. you know, it's, it's a bad deal.
1: But that, that's a teaching function. Uh, the the yes. most recent book, i got a paragraph I copied out, Extreme Measures. Zawahiri and bin Laden had not used a mobile phone in years, and the rest of al Qaeda and Taliban leadership used them only sparingly. Dozens had been killed or captured after making calls. One minute they'd be standing there talking, and the next thing you knew, a missile would come streaking through the air and blow them to bits. Now, I love this because it is absolutely true about Zawahiri and bin Laden. I've been told that by the highest sources. They're very security conscious now. They do not get close to getting exposed – but when we drop predators on people, we know what we're doing, Vince Flynn, and you're teaching people through a novel what what's going on there.
2: You, you mean the American people or the
1: terrorists? No, because the American people. No, the terrorists? No, they see themselves getting blown up on the cell phone. But
2: yeah, I don't, and I, I I really don't buy into the fact that you know the the Bin Laden types read my novels. I mean, I suppose there's a possibility somewhere along the although I've been told recently this blows me away that my books are very popular in saudi arabia and i don't know what that,
0: <laughs> what, that what?
2: what that means if that's a good thing or a bad thing like we actually have a you know fifth column in saudi arabia that, that believes in our, our struggle but um... i I've, I've grown my passion has grown right before the break i said on nine eleven i remember sitting there and i i think uh, part of the deal with an author is you spend so much time alone you're constantly looking into the future trying to think of what's going to happen and I had a real sinking feeling that, that morning, and it was simply this. Do we have the stomach to do this? Do we have the stomach to fight these guys? Because I, I knew right away, you know, because i I've been writing about it, it wasn't going to be a five-year war. It was going to be a generational war, if not multi-generational war. And they're a lot hungrier than we are. And my fear was almost immediately that we would start to see casualties, The media would act the exact way they acted. I I knew it it was was not hard to predict. And then the the liberal politicians in Washington would start screaming bloody murder and tear this country apart. And all of these individuals I just mentioned, and you've talked about this, if they had been around on D-Day, we would have put everybody back on the ships and gone back to America and built the walls, and that would have
1: been that. We would have quit. Do you think, uh, well, this two-part question. First of all, do you think the United States will be hit in a significant way again in the relatively near future by terrorists?
2: Without giving away what happens in the next book, I think when I did my research for Memorial Day, showed me how difficult it is to get your hands on a nuke. And as crazy as Ahmadinejad is and some of these other folks, uh, AQ Khan uh, in Pakistan and what have you, they know that if they go and let that nuke out of the Pandora's box there's a good chance they're going to get a nuke coming right back down their throat which and by the way you know the time was a wonderful thing and when that congressman i can't remember where he was from came out and said you know i think we should put him on notice that if they set off a nuke in uh, on american soil that we're going to nuke mecca and medina and uh you know a lot of the people in this country sort of freak out
1: i didn't like that i'm on i'm on the, that's tom ten crater but we make part company on this but go ahead
2: I found it at least an interesting idea. Uh, maybe not get that specific, but say we will respond.
1: Well, I don't mind saying Tehran will be a parking lot if Hezbollah yeah. uses a nuke against us. That's mm-hmm. that's for sure. But wh- wh- where were you going with the next book?
2: Well, with the next book is I-, I think they're headed towards a more of what you see over in Israel, which is that because it's so difficult to get your hands on nukes or chemical weapons, uh, the the dirty weapon is much easier and can cause a lot of problems. I think you're more likely, and I don't want to give the book, you know, what happened in Extreme Measures, but uh talked to quite a few people in Washington who, when they read that book, they said, holy crap, you know, this is this is what we fear most outside of a nuke. But we kind of say that's real hard to get through. You know, it's going to be very difficult for them to do them. This is the most plausible attack.
1: Did you see Al-Qaeda kill themselves playing around with the bubonic plague in Algeria?
2: I did see that.
1: You know, that's the other thing,
2: Vince. Well, <laughs> don't be so sure they killed themselves. I read that, and the first thing I thought was, "What a what a beautiful way to kill to take the enemy out." Oh, interesting! And if you were to be able to send something into the camp and let them get it and say, you know, bye bye.
1: You have been thinking about this. How how free and easy are the guys and the gals you talk with from within the agencies? Once or they get very to...
2: quiet, um, most of what happens is uh, when they retire. I hear more things. The other thing that happens is. um I am good at filling in the blanks. And I think Tom Clancy was the same way. You know, when he went out and read the, wrote The Hunt for Red Act over, they, they only took him so far and then he had to sit down and figure the rest of it out. Um, you know, I was writing about the secret prisons before and, you know, now, and, and this does put me into a bit of a moral crisis from a patriotic standpoint. I was writing about it without really thinking that, you know, when this, when this program gets blown, it, it's going to hurt us from a national security standpoint. But I was sitting down. I was hearing some rumors here and there, and I thought, well, you know, if I was a CIA, what would I do? I sure as heck wouldn't bring him back to America, and I wouldn't put him in Guantanamo because everybody knows about Guantanamo. So if it was a real high value, you know, terrorist, I'd, I'd take him to Uzbekistan,
0: you know?
1: That's the fact.
2: <laughs> and put them in some, put him in some cargo container that got up to 120 degrees every day at the end of the airstrip, and you know, sweated it out of him.
1: It, it's 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 amazing the amount of research and detail you have here about. I, I just was reminded about uh, Rashid. Is it Rashid Dotson, the guy from uh, the Tajik in, um, in Afghanistan? That's yes, a, yes. Uh, uh, what possessed you to have him have a walk on role?
2: Well, because he's a real character in real life, and he is he's a barbar, he's a excuse he's me a, a barbarian yep. who happens to be on our side. And you can just imagine uh, the reaction of a Taliban member that was about to be handed over to this man. They would right. be just mortified. What I found so interesting about it is you can, you, you can lay that whole scenario out. And this is what scares me about extreme measures. You would have, you would virtually be guaranteed that you would have uh, politicians on the left. And Department of Justice officials that would react the exact way yep. the characters
1: reacted in 100% the 100% certainty. Vince Flynn is my guest. We still got a half hour. Don't go anywhere, America. Four minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Vince Flynn, America's best-selling author. Vince, I'm running low on time with three segments, two of them pretty short. So I'm going to, I'm going to bounce around to the things I just absolutely have to ask you about. Okay. Uh, Inactive treason. You've got a side. Uh, Cy Garrett is a character. I'm not, again, I've been avoiding telling many plot details here because I hate to give away plots. People have to read for them. But he's a consultant. He's like Axelrod. He's like Rove. Yep. You loathe him. <laughs> uh, by the, everybody loathes him by the end of this book. What do you think of this professional class of media and electorate manipulators? And they're on both sides of the spectrum. All right. They're on the left yeah. and they're on the right. What do you think of them?
2: Well, where I have a problem, uh, I had a Hollywood producer who read the <laughs> that book and called me up and said, "And this shows you how people in Hollywood can be kind of miss the mark occasionally." <laughs> he said to me, "I just, oh, I love that book because something happens at the beginning of the next one. Um, you know, I love that that Garrett got what he deserved, and I just." I knew it was Carl Rove, wasn't it? <laughs> I just I look at the guy and I'm like, no, no. I I like Carl. I, like I know Carl. I like him. I I think Carl has been really unfairly. Moral, a moral
1: he's a very moral guy. Yep. Yeah, it,
2: you know what? He's funny. Yeah. Carl is a very jovial, funny man, and he's not the sinister person that people like to make him out to be. And by the way, I don't think Axelrod seems like a bad guy either.
1: I, I've got a fix for him yet. I'll take your word on that. I don't have a fix okay. on. Him. I,
2: I just I, I haven't met him, but I'm just I kind of get the feeling that I, I just don't think he's a horrible guy. Um, what where I took that Garrett character, and he actually he appears in Term Limits, the first book, the one that Rap is not in. But where I took him was. <sighs> These men that you meet on occasion, uh, there's a there's quite a few of them out in, in Hollywood, quite a few producers in Hollywood that operate this way, that were obviously never raised by parents who taught them how to respect other people, who think it is okay to throw a temper tantrum anytime they want to get whatever they want and be just an absolute, you know, the most vile person you can imagine to get what they want done. Now, we finally have a chief of staff in the White House who I... I respect only in the sense that he is a, adv- he's, he's a, <laughs> he is a uh, he's a, he's a, uh, he's a, he's a strong opponent, okay? Yep. But anybody who thinks that, uh, anybody who hated Karl Rove, it, because they think that he was radical, uh, has no right to stand up and say that they think Rahm Emanuel is a great guy. Because Rahm is probably one of the most divisive Tenacious men in Washington. Now I respect him because he's tenacious and he fights what he believes, what he believes in. But you know, he, the Bogoyevich tapes, you know, that's, that's Rom. Rom likes to swear every other word and if anybody gets in his way, he threatens to do really nasty things to him. And, uh, that's more like the Stu Garrett character.
1: Yep. Matt, it's, it's, a fascinating, uh, it's fascinating that you, you studied these people. Do you, do you spend much time with that class of person as opposed to the operators and the agents and the Secret Service people?
2: Not as much because I don't enjoy it as much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other, the other thing is I had somebody ask me once. They said, you know, how do you write these books and not live in Washington? And I said, well, the answer is simple. I said, if I lived in Washington, I'd be like all the other people who get sucked into it, and then I'd start pulling my punches. You know, the, the truth of it, is I, I actually deleted a paragraph one time because I consider Senator Coleman a good friend. And I, I wrote it and I'm like, oh, he's going to read this and think it's about that's him. And it's yeah. really bad. And I deleted it.
1: Yeah, that's good a good question. Now, what about the media? There's a key figure, again, I'm not giving it away, an ABC uh-huh. uh, a correspondent in this book who, who plays, she has a huge role in a few of the books. Uh-huh. What's your assessment of the talking heads, General? My
2: assessment of the talking heads? is that while they carry the banner of, uh, of honor and truth and the virtue of integrity, the, the little sneaky secret is that they are more competitive than the, your, the best pro athletes. They will do whatever it takes to get the story and make a name for themselves. And at the end of the day, it's about uh, satisfying their ego and oftentimes uh, a little bit of an insecure ego. And people don't take that into context enough that when David Gregory used to stand up and throw his little temper tantrums in the White House, you know, press room, it's because David spoiled rotten. And David wanted to get the story so he could get you know, he could advance his career. And it you know, the truth be damned and uh national security be damned and uh respect for the president, all that stuff. I, I have uh I've grown increasingly tired of of those people and uh I, I think that they are some of them are bordering on treasonous. I'll be probably perfectly honest. I, I think it's ridiculous the way some of them operate.
1: Uh, and we might be talking here about the New York Times and LA Times when they release classified stories on oh, the terrorist surveillance. Absolutely. Yeah, that's.
2: And, and by the way, Hugh, you, you go back 30 years ago. You talk about people with radical ideas. 30 years ago, the type of thing they are doing would have landed them in jail.
1: I'll be right back. Vince Flynn is my guest. His new book is Extreme Measures. The U Hewitt Show. 24 minutes after the hour, America. The time is rushing by. Vince Flynn has been my guest the entire show. This is an ultimate segment. Talking with America's best-selling author, his new book, Extreme Measures. Couple of questions about this, uh, uh Vince Flynn. Uh, Nash is new here. Um, yep. and, and I guess, my guess is you're taking him in a different direction than, than rap and, and that he's going to be around for a while. But what I found fascinating is this book that has gotten only high stakes terrorism, counterterrorism, a lot of political drama. A lot of commentary, a lot of sidebars. It's also got babies with poopy diapers. It's got, it's got erectile dysfunction. It's got, you know, juggling family life around. And I thought, because again, I know some of these people and the lives that they have real lives. They have real families. Was that part of the deal here?
2: It was. You know what? I, I, I I was in Washington about uh, two and a half years ago uh, with a good friend and, uh, who, uh, was, you know, very high up in uh, the clandestine service. And I heard him talking about some of the sacrifices he had to make, and it hit me that this is the untold story. Nobody in the media talks about this. We talk about the military leaving. We all get that that they, you know, they leave their families and they go and they sacrifice. But what most people don't understand is there's an entire uh, group of people at the CIA and and other agencies in Washington who, after 9/11, dropped it all. And they went and they were gone for months on end. Uh, they didn't get to see their kids grow up as much as they would have liked. Uh, many of them got divorced. Uh, dad wasn't around, so kids got into some trouble with, you know, drugs and this and that. And, um, and then what really hit me, and there's a scene in Memorial Day where, or Extreme Measures where I talk about this is, here's these guys, okay, who have given this great sacrifice to their country. They don't get paid a lot. And they literally, you, they're, they're pushing 80, 90, 100 hours a week right. for five, six years in a row. And they're not asking for anything back. And then you start to see what goes on when we destroyed the tapes um, of the waterboarding interrogations. And you see these people in Washington, the political opportunities, start to demand investigations. And I and I saw the sadness in this guy's eyes. That He literally is like, you know, uh, one of my biggest fears is that I'm going to fly back to D.C. after, you know, getting shot at over in Afghanistan and the Justice Department is going to be waiting for me and they're going to arrest me and they're going to throw me in jail. And that's the thanks that I'm going to get when this country rang the bell and said, hey, go do whatever it takes to make sure we don't get hit. And, and that's what they went and did. And you know what? We Do you expect them to, to come back with lily white gloves? I don't. No. and I don't. I think most people don't. But yet. The the political opportunists they can't help themselves and you you must have seen the parable in this book Hugh, where I talk about the scorpion and the frog. Yep. Oh yeah. It is who they are, the politicians, these, these the media types who can't, who all they really want to do is advance their own career. They can't help themselves. It's it's who they are. They see the opportunity, they jump to it. My, you are going to have more fun in the next four years watching Joe Biden stick his foot in his mouth, because the man,
1: that's who he is. They cannot not be slow, Joe Biden. Let me ask you, Vince Flynn, about uh, the parable in, its not a parable, the, the storyline in Executive Power, about the State Department Assistant Secretary talks to the ambassador, who talks to the wrong person in the Philippine, who talks to the Abu f guerrillas, through the corrupt general, yep. and bad things happen to good people, really bad things happen. Uh, and I got the sense that you were trying to communicate that, indeed, Loose lips do sink ships, you idiots. Oh, sure. and, and that, but we have not had a single prosecution of a leaker, or a single story told of how intelligence backdooring, uh, uh, reverse engineering intelligence leads to death in the field. Why not? Why hasn't the you, government?
2: It drives me insane. The Valerie Plane deal. Okay, I have no no issue with with Valerie Plain. but I had a high ranking person at Langley tell me that every year. They refer, on average, about 200 cases to the Justice Department where they feel their operatives have been outed. And in the last five years, guess how many clas- cases they've pursued? Yep, none. One.
1: The Valerie, the Valerie Plame.
2: Plame. Plame. And, and, and again, this goes back to our old, you know, our education, that you know, with logic. Um, everybody forgets one thing here. Valerie Plame would have never been outed if her husband hadn't gone and shot his mouth off. He was the one that put her in the crosshairs of everything. He knew his wife was a clandestine operative who hadn't served overseas in three years, no, no mind you. He, he went and wrote the op-ed piece all on his own, and for him to do that and think that, that people weren't going to go, hey, who is he married to? <laughs> I mean, come on.
1: Yeah, yeah. In terms of the uh, the, the Iranian uh, uh, thing that we're closing, I want to get back to uh, Protect and Defend. Do you believe that we've got the kind of assets to let us know what they're up to because we have worn out our intelligence service. Do, do you think we've got people who are still up to the game on the front lines?
2: No, unfortunately. I think we have ran these people under the ground. I think that we still have a lot of talented people at, uh, at Langley, specifically You know where I, where I talk to people. But the truth of the matter is, Hugh, a lot of them have left. They've simply said enough. They saw the way, um, that a lot of these guys were treated in the last three years with the investigations on the waterboarding and and the enhanced measures and all that stuff. And they said, why? Why would I continue to do this? You know, their wives are looking at them saying, are you nuts? Are you, you're making 60 grand a year. I see you, you know, once every three months, you're home for a couple weeks and you go back over there. And, And for what? So you can keep looking over your shoulder that the FBI is going to arrest you someday? And so no, we've lost a lot of really talented people. And the other thing is, it's causing these guys to flinch. They're in the field and they're they're hesitating. Do you know how bad it's gotten? You? They they get a prisoner now. You're not going to believe this. They get a prisoner now and they start to interrogate him. Let's say it's a fairly high value target and the person's not talking. They have to get they have to call back to Langley. They got to get the attorneys to fill out the right legal forms. And the DCI has to sign it that it's okay for them to slap the guy and fax it back over there.
1: Isn't that amazing? That comes through in extreme measures. But uh unless you actually have research, I, there's a tendency for me not to believe it's that bad, so I'm glad you're it's telling me problem. it is that bad.
2: It's, bad. it's literally, it's become, and no offense, you know, I know you got your law degree
1: from Michigan, but we have too many lawyers. Of course, oh, no, but no, amen, amen. And And you know what, guys, the good ones, the good ones have fled the government because you cannot write an opinion. Uh, on any uh, that will not end up having you uh, ruined in the public practice of law if you were in the Bush Justice Department. Uh, last segment coming up with Vince Flynn. Not ruined, but compromised, maybe set back in your career ambitions. I'll talk about it some other time. I want to close my interview down. We return after this. 55 minutes after the hour, Americans show here with Vince Flynn. Vince, first of all, thanks for spending the entire program with me. What a hoot. And I know that people love your books. You're going to enjoy this. I have one more question. I just want to make sure I give you a chance as well if I have missed anything. Generally speaking, are you a happy guy? Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror. I mean, my kids are happy. I've got, you know, an, an awesome wife. Um, yeah, I'm very happy.
1: Okay, and, and so generally speaking, do you think what you're doing has a dimension beyond just entertainment that 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 it's important that you're on i talked to jay matthews last week about his book about inner city education etc and he's on a mission to try and get people to pay attention in inner, inner city education are you on a kind of a mission
2: i am i mean i and I, I don't even know if i knew i was on the mission until recently uh where it hits home is i just got back in town last night and opened up a big stack of mail that the publisher had sent and there were uh, you know, a couple letters from high school kids thanking me that they've never read before and now they've become voracious readers. But, you know, the one that really gets me is I'll, you know, I'll get the letter from the retired spook or active duty or I'll meet the special forces guys when I'm, when I'm traveling around and they'll say to me, hey, thanks. Thanks for telling our side of the story. Uh, because not enough people are doing it. And, uh, I, I really, I, I'm a big student of history, Hugh, and I'm always, uh, it, it, it borders on unnerving me to disgusting me that the lack of respect I see from certain quarters uh, of this country for the sacrifice that, that these men and women in the military and the national security community make for us. I, it just it drives me
1: insane. Do you think that will change if and when? And it's really a when uh, another major terrorist attack. Happens? Oh yeah,
2: absolutely. In fact, you I, I go back to the 1930s and look at history, and I'm, I've got this horrible feeling that we're starting to repeat ourselves. And what happens when you force people to deny uh, certain natural, uh, let's say, market forces, and you force them to deny the obvious through things like political correctness and diversity, um, you can only do that for so long. And then it eventually snaps back, and there's a horrible effect, a horrible reprisal. And my fear is we're... One or two attacks away from the mob mentality taking place and people finally saying, you know, screw it, enough is enough. I've only seen one group of people running around causing all these problems, and they are Islamic radical fundamentalists between the age of 16 and 32. And um,
1: let's stop this nonsense. And uh, I'm not. And then the mob I, takes over. Yeah. And it, yes, and it makes me nervous. It makes me very nervous as well. And I, you know, I think it's a good warning to conclude on that we've got to be very careful not to go so far in one direction that the snapback will be equally far in the other direction. Hey, yeah. Vince Flynn, thanks again. What a great joy, and uh, I appreciate it. Next time I'm in Minnesota, I'll, I'll buy you some French fries at the fair or something. No, Take no, no. I
2: will buy you a steak dinner at Manny's.
1: Now, that's a, that's a deal. I look forward to it. And, uh, and say hello to your long-suffering wife for us as well, because she let you get away for a few hours with us today. I appreciate it very Thank much. You. Especially you've been traveling. America, thanks. I'll be back. Thank you, Generalissimo. Thank you, Adam, for setting this up. Thank you, especially Minnesota, for producing Vince Flynn. We'll talk to you on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.